You're listening to the Pastor Writer Podcast, episode 38. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Douglas Wilson. He's a prolific author who's written across a wide variety of topics. He joins me to talk specifically about his book, Wordsmithy, all about the craft of writing and the writer's life. We talk about what it means to be a writer, how it impacts ministry, and also how writing is a part of joining a bigger conversation, a conversation of your own reading, your own readers, and your own future writing. It's an encouraging conversation, a fascinating topic. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks for listening. Joining me on the podcast today is Pastor Douglas Wilson. He's the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, a leader in classical education and well-known as a public apologist and theologian. He's also the author of an incredibly wide spectrum of books, everything from parenting and education to theology and history and cultural issues of our day. There's two books I'd highly recommend if you're interested in writing particularly. His book we're going to spend some time talking about today, Wordsmithy, Hot Tips for the Writing Life, and Writers to Read, Nine Names that Belong on Your Bookshelf. Doug, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Well, I want to jump in and look at this. Uh, across your ministry, you've been involved in a lot of areas, as I sort of mentioned in the introduction. There's the pastoring piece, the education piece, the public apologetics. But one of the things that I notice sort of unites all of those roles is the role of writing, the way it stretches across all of those areas of your ministry. I'm curious at what point you recognized writing was going to play that prominent place in the work that you do. I, I knew that writing was going to be big in what I was at least attempting sometime in the probably the mid 80s. So I I wound up pastoring a church in uh, 77 and I was still in school. And so I, I began my course of reading at that, you know, trying to get up to speed that way. And my plan was uh, Moscow is a great place to bring up kids uh, our plan was to bring our kids up here, and then I wanted to go back to move. I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and I wanted to move back to the East Coast to try to make a dent, make a difference. And in the um, in the 80s, the desktop publishing revolution began, and I realized that I, I really liked living here, and I realized that I could do everything that I wanted to do uh, from a distance, I could write. I could I could write. I could publish. I could do I could do all of that uh, without moving. Well, first off, probably I should say the book Wordsmithy is just a phenomenal book. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's on my list. I give to people a lot of times when they're interested in writing. But at some point, that's a little. There's a jump there. Just to hey, writing is going to be a tool that'll be helpful for ministry. To what I really see come across in that book, which is a deep love for writing, a love for the craft of writing, and and growing as a writer. Um, there's a section in the book where you say this. You say, um, "Be at peace with being lousy for a while." When it comes to writing, and you quote Chesterton, who once said, "Anything worth doing is worth." doing badly. He was right. Only an insufferable egoist expects to be brilliant the first time out. Uh, I'm interested to hear you talk about how you evaluate your early writing and how you went about recognizing that it's going to be important, growing in the craft of writing itself. Well, I think back in the day, I understood that my writing wasn't all that hot. It was um, pedestrian. Basically, I had something to say and and I wanted to say it in some sort of cogent fashion, but it was, I would say, by and large, pedestrian. Here's, 
here's what the verse says, and this is what I think it means and how to plug it in. Um, so I was uh, dimly aware of that or somewhat aware of that at the time. Looking back at what my writing was like, it's kind of embarrassing from this vantage point where I think I knew it wasn't um, great, but I did, wasn't aware of how not great it was. <laughs> and uh, But I also knew, and this was a driving force, I, I, I knew that um, I, I grew up in evangelical circles. I've been around evangelical magazines and uh, newsletters, missionary newsletters my whole life. And when I was in high school, I ran across William F. Buckley's book, Up From Liberalism, which entranced me because it was uh, taking a conservative traditional stand, but it was engaging and interesting to read. And I started, I, I subscribed to National Review when I was in high school. And, and again, the, the, I'm just talking about the prose here. It was engaging. It was funny. It was interesting. And I want, I, why can't Christians write like that was the, my, my question. Why can't, um, why can't Christians hold my interest? The, the problem was that Christians traffic in eternal things, you know, God, Jesus, Bible, the salvation of souls, souls are perishing. And so the subject matter is so weighty and so important that we sometimes get lazy and expect the subject matter to hold everybody's interest. Um, but actually, shouldn't we say the subject matter is so important that it ought to make us desire to improve our craft, improve how we write, how we communicate? Yeah, so you set up these two sort of extremes, though, I think people get caught in. So number one, there's the – and I think a lot of people write out of this place. Um, a particular book or a particular author has been significant in my life, and I say to myself – I want to be able to do something like that or to be like that. And then the other end of the spectrum is I look at my own writing and realize it's nowhere near that. There's a long ways to go. And you talk about in the book that we fall into the trap of thinking that talent is determined, that sort of you either have this gift of writing or you don't. And if you have it, you'll do it. And if you don't, what's the hope? You might as well give up. Um, there's a lot of a lot of people out there I know who are interested in writing at the beginning stages of writing, who are in that place where they're saying, do I have it? Is writing something I'm going to be able to do? Maybe I just don't have this talent, this gift. Um, what's your advice to somebody who's at that point, maybe where you were early on, recognizing you're not where you want to be as a writer? I would say you're not going to know until you stretch, until you have a go at it. And so uh, what you need to do is be humble enough to accept a negative answer. If if uh, you seek to be a writer and the answer from God comes back, no, I didn't put that into you. That That's that's not your gift. You're going to find out soon enough if you if you attempt it, right? If you say, I'm, I want to write. And if you attempt it and it just does, keeps not being any good, um, well, then be humble and accept that God wants you, you know, God wants you doing something else. But if uh, if you if you sit there thinking I I might have these gifts or abilities, I wonder if I do. Well, that's not going to get wondering is not going to get you anywhere. You've got to attempt it, right? Right? If you I wonder if I've got what it takes um, to play in the NBA. Well, why don't you go shoot some hoops? And if you are zero for twenty five three pointers, <laughs> maybe not.
Yeah, I do think what tends to get us is we have the sort of image of a writer, um, that writer that might have formed our interest in writing because we read what they had created. And we're sort of more interested in that image of the writer than really the, the tangible work of sitting down and actually doing the writing. Right. We, we would rather uh, – there, there are two kinds of people who want to be writers. There are people who want to be writers because they want to write. And there are people who want to write because they want to have written. Yeah. Right. And and so when those who want to have written, they want to be a writer. The, 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 oftentimes at parties, they'll introduce themselves as I'm a writer when they haven't written anything yet. They haven't produced anything yet. What they what they want is the is the reputation of having been a writer instead of wanting to get it out. Um, there really needs to be an itch or a, a real desire to to say something and get and say it on paper. Um, so just saying it to your friends isn't good enough. You want to craft it, mold it, and it really is an internal itch. Yeah, I'm curious, as I sort of mentioned before, your writing has extended into all sorts of areas and topics, a really prolific number of books. Obviously, it's something that you don't despise doing. There's some enjoyment, I guess, in sitting down and writing because you've been able to do so much of it. I'm really curious where that that energy, that stamina comes from. And, and I really mean that in, in two directions. There's the just tangible, I've produced a lot of books, which takes a lot of work. Where does that come from? But also uh, that sort of inner drive to explore new areas, to put it down in writing, to take on challenging topics. Uh, where does that stamina, that energy come from for you as a writer? Well, in some respects, that's I'm, my answer to that question is not going to be that helpful. Because I like I like to tell people that I write for the same reason that dogs bark. I I was just built to do this, and I don't have to spur myself on to do it. It's sort of like uh, if you saw me eating a big bowl of you know cookie dough ice cream, and you were to say, "How do you find the stamina?" <laughs> I, would, I would say, "Well, nothing. This is uh, stamina doesn't enter into it. I just I just love it, and." And it is work, but it's work that I love to do. And it, it really is a get to, not a got to. Um, once in a blue moon, I'll have something, you know, a deadline of something approaching and the work side of it presents itself um, more immediately to me. But that's generally pretty rare. Yeah, well, I think it's helpful to for people to hear too, because again, you can kind of get this image of a writer as one who's like, you know, constantly up against the writer's block and constantly fighting to get it out. And most of the writers I talk to, there does seem to be, although it is difficult at times, there's a joy behind it that I, I do think you're right to say, if isn't there, if you hate doing this, maybe, maybe it's not what God is calling you to. Right. Yeah. Well, um, how about this as well too? Um, in the book, one of the big themes for wordsmithy that I took away from it as an encouragement was, it's easy to fall into the trap when we're talking about writing of just the technical part, sort of thinking of writer as just the action of doing it. But you talk about what really develops a writer's voice is the life of the writer, the life, the life that happens before the writing takes place. And you give this interesting piece of advice on voice that, um, that you're, you should test out your voice, your writing in conversation first, and you should write out of conversation versus talking like you're a writer. You've sort of already hinted at. You should live in such a way that the writing flows out of it. How has that been true in the way that you've pastored, the way that you've lived, and how it works itself out in your writing? Um, one of the things I, I'm pretty sure I say this somewhere in, in Wordsmithy is um, don't um, don't save all your good stuff for 
um, for the limelight, right? Yeah. If you're if you're writing an if you're writing an email to your cousin, and a and a turn of phrase occurs to you, use it there. Don't don't hoard it, um, uh, because your writing gift, uh, memory, gift, talent is not like a shoebox. It's more like a muscle, right? It's um. The more you use it, the more you can. the The more you use it, the more you can use it. It's not like a shoebox that gets full. So if I if I um if I'm talking to friends or if I'm in a conversation with my wife or emailing my cousin and a turn of phrase occurs to me, I'll just use it right there. Use it on the spot. You're exercising that muscle, right? You're, as opposed to uh, musicians, don't run out of C major chords, right? It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So what is the relationship then to a writer and, and life or a writer's life that shapes the writing? Well, the, it's amazing how much texture and color um, and ways of expressing it are out there in the world that don't normally make it anywhere near publication. Right. So let's say you you wanted to spend a week on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico and all you all you did was walked around looking at the, you know, taking notes, looking at the um, looking at the men working, listening to them describe what they were doing. How much texture, how much color would be in that? Well, an enormous amount. Right? And it all just falls over the side of the oil rig and falls into the sea. Nobody ever publishes that stuff unless a writer is around around that real life interaction paying attention. People, uh, people are inventive. Uh, their slang is colorful. Their way, their approach to their, their task, whether it's the task of an auto mechanic or a stay at home mom or, or, Someone who's uh, a, you know a librarian. Everybody's got their inside jokes, their inside stories, their challenges, and all of it is interesting. So uh, I I forget if I say this in the book. Basically, this is riffing off of uh, Chesterton, I think again, where an interesting person is an interested person. So. If you are interested in what's going down around you, and you are interested, you're you're. If you're only interested in sitting down at your at your computer to write about life, and you're not interested in the life itself, you're going to be a boring writer. Everything you produce is going to smell of the library. Yeah, let me ask this: how do you, how does that relate to your work as a pastor as well? Um, do you think that that sort of attention was true of pastoral ministry and shaped writing? Was it more true of writing and shaped pastoral ministry? Sort of the relationship of that awareness for what's happening around you. I it it was it ha- for me it has definitely been um, a two way street going both ways. Um, in order to be a pastor, in order to be a preacher, you have to study. Uh, you have to study the Word. You have to study the Scriptures. That which you're proclaiming the gospel that you're proclaiming, you have to study the people, the, the people in front of you, the, the people that you're ministering to, and you have to study the culture that those people are living in. You have to know what they're up against. You have to know what they're dealing with. And so when I study the culture, I'm, I'm studying the context of the people that I'm preaching to. When I'm studying 
the text. I'm I'm interested in how to translate this uh, timeless concept, this timeless gospel, into 2018 terms. As I do that, I get people feeding, you know, get feedback from people, and that throws light on the scripture. It it really is a um, uh, an interactive enterprise. Yeah, well, and that's you. The way it comes across in the book, you describe it as as a part of your reading and as a part of the writing and speaking. You're participating in a conversation. Um, a lot of times, especially in sort of the digital age we're in, we think of writing as sort of hitting publish, right? Like it's me speaking, and I put it out there for other people to read. Uh, how do you think about writing as participating in conversation? Yeah, th- this is actually a very important um, point because it takes almost nothing to get a blog set up and start writing and just expressing yourself. Um, and it, I believe adamantly, profoundly, that you ought not to even think about being a writer unless you're a reader. You, you need to be um, reading, 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 taking things in. You, you can't grind flour for everybody if no wheat is going into your, into your um, uh, mill. Yeah, true for being a pastor as well. Absolutely. Yeah, you've you've got to. Uh, there's an old uh, preacher's trope on the difference between the the Sea of Galilee and the and the Dead Sea. They're both fed by the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee has input and output. You know, the river flows in and the river flows out. Uh, with the uh, sea, the with the Dead Sea, the river flows in and not out. That's a Dead Sea, and then uh, if it flows out and you've got no input, no river flowing in, you're not going to have a sea at all. You're going to have a dry basin. Yeah, so how, um, how, when you think about your own writing, how do you think about it as conversation? So instead of just, here's the views that I've acquired through my reading, here's the way I put it, uh, do you think about the conversation you're having? Who do you think about that conversation being with? Yeah, I, I, I see it as a conversation between, uh, this is a networked kind of thing. So, I'm having a conversation with the people who follow me, the people who read me, the people that I'm reading, and the people that I'm reading, whoever they're reading. <laughs> okay. So, um, so for example, in my blog post this morning, I, I quote a book I'm in the middle of right now. is called The Demon and Democracy, which I'm uh, listening to in my truck, and it's quite a valuable book. I'm learning uh, learning quite a bit from it. So I took a couple of insights that really struck me from that book, uh, uh, shaped them, and applied them to to a subject that was of interest to me. So um, the people who are reading me are in now in a conversation with the author of that book as well as with me. Um, I'm in a conversation with all the people that that gent is uh is reading, and sometimes uh, I know that, for example, I I started on this book because one of my readers, one of my friends, wrote me and asked me if I'd read that book, and I'd heard of it, and I, I that was the nudge that I needed to to get into that book. So it's like it it really is true that what goes around comes around. Yeah, I think this is something as a writer you start to feel maybe more than you even recognize it happening. And I get a lot of listeners or friends who will say, you know, one of the big questions is what to read next and how do you pick out what to read? Uh, and I do think you get to a point where you start to recognize there is a conversation going on 
maybe we don't read deep enough to recognize that conversation sometimes. We just sort of stay on the surface of what's popular. But when you do get plugged into, oh, I see how these things are starting to connect and how this writer is working off of the conversation that's been happening, I think it has a big impact then of how you understand your work as not sort of just having something to say, but participating and continuing that conversation. Yes. Another example of this is one time years ago, I wrote, um, I, I made a point in passing in, in one of my blog posts that uh, no event, no historical event, however unlikely, once it happens, once a, this unlikely event has happened, like the Reformation or the fall of the Soviet Union, as soon as it happens, that event can, can be shown by numerous competent historians to have been inevitable. And yet nobody calls it beforehand, right? Yeah. Oh, if, it, if it was all that obvious and, and inevitable, then why, why didn't someone two years before Martin Luther announce that this was coming or five years before the fall of the Soviet Union announced that it was coming? So I made that point in passing. And one of my commenters said, have you read The Black Swan by uh, Nicholas Taleb? Which I hadn't at that time. But interestingly, I had bought it for some reason and it was sitting on my shelf. So this commenter said, have you read this book? That What you just said reminds me of that. So I hauled that book down, read it, really, enjoy, really enjoyed it and have started pursuing his other books. And that's, a, that's an example of a commenter saying to me, what you just said reminds me of something that would be interesting to this other fellow. I think the other thing it does is thinking about writing as conversations is it safeguards us from the idea that this one book that I'm working on is everything that I have to say and everything that the world needs to hear, uh, which I think can be the trap of when you're sort of absorbed in this one project that you're working on, that in reality – uh, it's not just yours. It's a part of this conversation. And there'll be conversation after you've written it, some of which will make you think even differently about what you've written. Um, is that true of the way you think about having written so many books over such a long period of time? Do you see your writing as sort of a continual evolution of conversations that you're having? Yes. And uh, probably the core of uh, the core of this comes out of something I learned from my dad, who was a, a conference speaker and a pastor for for a number of years, he, he once uh, said to me, when you run out of things to say, go on to the next verse. <laughs> okay, there, what are you talking about running out of things? There's, there's so much going on. There's this torrent of information flowing by. We've got this huge Bible. We've got this complex world that's whizzing by us. Um, talk about it. You know, um, Acquaint yourself with the, what's actually going on so you're not just uh, winging off with, you know, first impressions. But there, it, it's like saying uh, a logger in, in Canada in 1800 sa saying, I can't find another tree. <laughs> there are trees everywhere. Go on to the next one. And, and so there are books everywhere. There are events everywhere. Every morning that I, uh, every morning I get up, um, and look at the, my news feed, uh, there's always something going on. There's always uh, something remarkable going on. Well, the flip side of this, uh, which one of my favorite parts of the book, Wordsmithy again, was uh, the last sentence of the book is about knowing when to stop, which I thought was clever. Uh, <laughs> that's part of this question as well, too, though, is uh, how do you know as a writer – 
when you've reached the limit, you're done. You know, you've exhausted what you have to say on a topic. Um, when do you know when to stop yourself from speaking altogether? And one of the things you're known for is sort of engaging with current events and things that are happening around us. But there has to be a sense for you of of knowing that boundary of when is the right time to engage, when is the right time to stop. How do you sense that as a writer? Yeah, um, that is, the the way you sense it. For for example, I, years ago I, I saw a great cartoon where uh, a man was standing at the uh, podium and the auditorium in front of him was emptying out. And he was saying, I see that the next speaker needs no introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things you, you, you um, can do, and this is really important, is when if you are a cook, if you're a hashlinger or a cook, and you set up a, you know, your little operation, does anybody come? Does anybody show up? Do, do people like your food? Uh, so, and and then you can tinker with it. Now, in the blogging world, the the received wisdom is uh, to have a blog post that is approximately six hundred words, because the the doctrine is that uh, our generation has the attention span of a hummingbird, and so you you want to be pithy and want you want to have. Uh, headings broken out and, you know, that sort of thing. And then 600 words. And when I've, when I've written for other websites, you know, they ask for a contribution from me. That's oftentimes the, the range that they want me to, um, submit something in. When I write for my blog, it is, uh, between, usually between a thousand and two thousand words on a, on a blog post. And sometimes if it's a huge subject, three thousand plus. But, but I then I, I said, okay, but it's not going to kill me to put headers in, you know, to, to break it up so someone can easily skim through what I have to say. Now, if I, if the received wisdom, and this is just a, a matter of metrics, if the received wisdom is you're going to lose people past a thousand and I write 1500 word blog posts regularly and my traffic is growing, I, I can say, uh, no, I don't think that's a problem. If if my traffic started to fall off precipitously, and I I was interested in not you know every, writers want to be read. The reason you're doing it is you want people you want the the word to get out. So if you're losing everybody, I should ask myself some basic questions. What changed? What's different? Um, what can I adjust? What can I experiment with? I'd be more than happy. If, if my traffic fell off and someone said, hey, why don't you cut your blog posts in half and spread it over a couple of days? I, yeah, I'd experiment with that. But I don't need to because um, my, the traffic is growing. Yeah, one of the things that inevitably happens is there's sort of the advice that gets out there in the air and everybody sort of flocks to it. And then since everyone's doing it, that seems to be the thing that's working. Uh, and I do think coming to a place where you recognize what it is you do and to be able to recognize the value that it has is significant. One of the questions on that that I like to ask guests is um, as you evaluate what's happening in Christian publishing, Christian writing, uh, things that you think are encouraging and things that you think are problematic and we should be aware of? The, um, I think it's probably going to reduce to the same thing. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that the, um, the disappearance of the old-style gatekeepers, you know, editors, publishing houses, a handful of big publishing houses – 
in the secular world, Random House, HarperCollins, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And and in the Christian world, there were a handful of um, standard publishing publishing houses, Erdman's and whatnot. Uh, We, because of the the electronics revolution, the digital revolution, uh, the the obstacles to getting into print have virtually disappeared. Okay. Now that means that you can publish your book on Amazon and your mom and your sister both buy it. And and so you have to uh, become your own marketing director as well, or you have to do something that's really uh, valuable. So I think it's a good thing that, Though the I think the old gatekeeping system had had been corrupted and was being used to protect the zeitgeist, protect the established narrative, and so I think it's good that it's gone. I think that our big danger is that editors did do something. <laughs> they 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 not only prevented uh, cogent uh, critiques of the system from getting into print, they also prevent a, a whole lot of trash from getting into print. So. Uh, we're we're up against a glut of um, not very good stuff that is getting into print, but we're also uh, the, um, there. There was a lot of talent out there that was being restricted and being blocked, blocked, and and those those things are are uh, making an appearance. You you can find them if you know where to look. So this is one of the big pressures then that people who are just beginning to write or exploring writing face is, uh, well, there's the obvious, the traditional versus self-publishing route, but there's more and more options even within that. The real question comes down to, um, in my opinion, how, how do I market myself? How do I position myself? Sort of these strategic questions, which can really become sort of. Uh, overwhelming for a lot of writers, especially if you take people who are, I'm really in full-time ministry or bivocational ministry and writing as well. What's the advice you would give for somebody who's sort of trying to navigate that world, trying to figure out (laughs) their call is to write, but they're finding themselves welcomed into an ever more complicated set of options to accomplish that writing. What is your advice for somebody about entering the world of writing and trying, as you put it, to, to be read, to find an audience? Yeah, the thing I would say is in a world that's getting increasingly complicated, one of the uh, one of the things that is happening is that there are tools, software tools, different uh, things like that, that enable uh, a writer with a complicated life to simplify his life, whether it's Evernote or Scrivener, word writing software. Uh, you know, so here's an example of a. Um, you mentioned a pastor, a bivocational pastor, let's say, um, and he's got to preach. Every, he's got to preach every Sunday, and he's got to he's got to work at the real estate um, office during the week. Okay, so uh, we are we are living in a time where life is complicated, but it's also a time when someone else is compli- has been complicated enough to write software that enables him to produce his sermon outline, which he needs to do anyway, and then take an extra five minutes to drop it into a Scrivener file, which can be organized as the backbone or the outline of his future book. Right? So one of the things I believe in is doing double duty. Um, if if I um, if I do a sermon series, that sermon series might become a booklet at some time, at some point, or 
occasionally, I've even uh, done a uh, a piece for like a blog piece that I've later retrofitted for a uh, uh, a conference talk or something like that. So don't be shy about using your stuff more than once and expanding and refining and and uh, working on it as you go. So other advice, we'll maybe sort of uh, wrap up this way too, but um, for that sort of, we'll just stick with the same character, if you will, the same person. What's your encouragement for them about, number one, the value of writing for a pastor? Uh, is it something a pastor should be pursuing? And two, just sort of encouragement to, as you said, <laughs> enjoy the bowl of ice cream, to just enjoy the process, the craft of doing it for its sake as well. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in words. And I'm a believer in words written down. The, the one being who would never have to, would, would not need to write anything down would be God. But he did, right? So God wrote a book. God is an author. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, preferred meeting with his, his, the people he's pastoring face-to-face. He, he says, to the Galatians, I wish I could be with you so I could change my tone tone with you. And, um, and, and you have that kind of preference for face-to-face communication for people you love. But at the same time, we do have the book of Ephesians. We do have the book of Philippians. We do have these things that were written down. Um, if the apostles wrote things down because they wanted to preserve things, they wanted their what they knew and understood to be preserved past their death, uh, we should do the same thing. We should not, we should not be too haughty and too proud. We should not be above what the apostles did. Well, I appreciate it. I think it's true. And uh, I know in my own life, I've found that the writing has impacted so much the way I pastor so much the way I think about pastoring and, and the flip side true. I think they fit together really well. What are some ways if people want to continue to follow your writing, to follow, as you mentioned, sort of the blogs that you're putting out, best ways for people to be able to keep up with the writing you're doing? Probably the uh, the clearinghouse where you can find pretty much everything that I'm up to would be my blog, which is at uh, dougwills.com. It's blog and made blog, dougwills.com. And there are usually, there are links there to everything else that I'm doing. And I, I generally post uh, something every day and you can navigate there from there to everywhere. Well, I'll make sure and include a link. And uh, again, just want to reiterate, say thank you for uh, not just the writing you do, but particularly the writing about writing. So wordsmithy and also what to read and uh, make sure if you haven't picked those books up, I highly recommend them all. I have links with the show notes as well. And Doug, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It was great being with you. I appreciate it. As always, you can find links to the books mentioned in today's podcast, as well as Doug's website by going to the show notes for this episode at pastorwriter.com slash 38. Just wanted to continue to encourage you, if you haven't already, to leave a review of the show on iTunes. Reviews are the best way to help new listeners discover the show and also to help me get feedback about the guests I'm having and ways that I can continue to improve it. As always, wanted to say thanks for listening and until next time.